parents and others who brought your children this week to Vacation Bible School. What a pleasure it was to have them with us, and thank you for entrusting them to us. And uh, having had two children that attended Vacation Bible School when they were young, and now seven grandchildren who are having opportunities to do that, um, you know, when you're a child, you, you have things implanted in you that at the time may not seem uh, like they're going to be uh, that important or that helpful to you. But at some point in your life, you never know when you're going to be under a stressful situation and a scripture that you heard when you were a child or a song that you sang uh, causes you to look up and to find help that you can't find by just looking around. And so I want to say thank you to all those volunteers, uh, all those who helped. I know that our staff was fully engaged in a lot of ways, but this was a massive effort that involved a lot of volunteers at a lot of different levels. And I want to say thank you to each one of you. And uh, the most important thank you is yet to come. And that's the one from the Lord Jesus himself when we see him face to face. Now, Jesus' words at the end of Matthew chapter 5 represent the highest point in the Sermon on the Mount. And I might say about this high point that the words at the end of Matthew chapter 5 are the reason why the Sermon on on the Mount is uh, most admired and also most resented. It presents an attitude of total love which Christ calls his followers to show towards those who are evil and also to those who would do us harm, our enemies. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 42, Jesus delivers God's word on retaliation. Now, is this an important topic for us? Uh, Yes, I would say so. And it relates to us in in many different ways in our relationships. But one that is most noticeable is the fact that the state of Tennessee ranks third in highest incidence of road rage. And the greater Nashville area ranks seventh among all cities that uh, have reported incidents of road rage. Of course, many go unreported. And causes for it can be everything from stress to just running late for uh, an important appointment. But you can usually spot it with aggressive driving. But what is it that sets it off? Well, they've identified several factors. Unnecessarily or lengthy laying on your horn, honking your horn at somebody. Tailgating. Cutting somebody off in traffic. Or maybe just a distracted driver, someone who's looking at their phone or not paying attention. All those things have been cited as things that will set somebody off. But irregardless of what precipitates it, we know the reaction is defined with one word. It's the word retaliation. 
And so I want you to listen to the word of Jesus this morning in Matthew chapter 5 because road rage is not the only area where this applies. I begin the reading at verse 38, and this is what Jesus says. Now you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to see you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Let's bow our heads together in prayer and ask the Lord's blessing on the reading of his word. Uh, Father, thank you for speaking to us about things that, Lord, we, we need to hear, and you know we need to hear them. And even the timing when we hear them, God, is uh, beyond our own uh, appointment schedule. And so we thank you for your sovereignty in speaking to us today on this particular topic. Uh, Lord Jesus Nothing so challenges us as these words. And no area of conduct more greatly contrasts your people with those in the world. Father, we would also confess that nowhere is the need for the power of the Holy Spirit more evident in our lives. So, Father, we come before you asking you to Apply the healing ointment of your word to our hearts and change us, Jesus, by the power of your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. In our text, Jesus calls our attention to God's earliest word on retaliation and also to God's last word. On retaliation. First of all, we notice in verse 38 that God's earliest word limits retaliation. Now, Jesus completed Old Testament law. That means that Jesus filled it to the full. And each of the six examples that Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning in Matthew 5, verse 22, and going through the end of this chapter, and we're nearing the end, Jesus goes further in the same direction as God's laws that were given in the Old Testament. I want you to notice with me this morning that first of all, or recognize this morning, that God's earliest word limits retaliation. The Old Testament contained a moral law, which is found in Exodus chapter 20. And then it also contained a civil law that we read in Exodus 21 22, and 23. The proverb, eye for eye and tooth for tooth, was part of the criminal uh, code in the Old Testament. And what you have when that code is given is you have a chaotic uh, situation where you've got a slave people who are coming out of Egypt who desperately need direction, uh, such as they've not seen or witnessed while in slavery, 
that would give them guidance in knowing how they're to handle civil cases and criminal cases. And so God set up judges in Israel, and he gave them a code, a guideline, some laws to direct them. So what we have in Matthew chapter 5, verse 38, is actually a direct quotation that Jesus lives from this civil law. And it's found in Exodus 21, verse 24. And uh, in that, it renders a court decision. It tells, this is what you do in this situation. If one knocked out another man's eye, the offender would pay with his own eye or some sort of agreed cash settlement. Now, I read that, and I thought about that, and I'm thinking there are a lot of people, perhaps, who are emptying their bank account, right? I mean, they're breaking piggy banks and everything they can to come up with a cash settlement rather than exchanging one eye for the eye that they... uh, knocked out, whether intentionally or unintentionally, of another person. So God's earliest word was set out to limit retaliation, and it was a word of civil legislation. But I want you to notice also, or know also, that God's earliest word about retaliation was a word of preventive limitation. Preventive limitation. Passion, as we know, can push a person beyond retaliation. So when we're hurt, what happens? We want to hurt back. But not only do we want to hurt back, we want to hurt more than we were hurt. And if you have children or you have loved ones who've been hurt by somebody else, you you know that feeling of wanting to see somebody else get what they have coming to them on down the road. So the earliest law that God gave was designed to limit retaliation and personal misunderstandings. And again, what's Jesus doing here? He's going further in the same direction. God's earliest word about retaliation had undergone a subtle perversion. And that's what precipitates this word from Jesus. The Pharisees had moved the law from the law courts to personal relationships. So the very word that God had given to prevent personal retaliation was now used by the Pharisees as the grounds for personal retaliation. Had the Pharisees read their Bibles more closely, they would have recognized in the book of Leviticus, the 19th chapter and the 18th verse, that God's word says, do not take revenge. They had access also to the wisdom literature of Israel, of which Proverbs is a part. And in Proverbs it says, Don't say I'll do to him what he's done to me. I'll repay the man for what he has done. And so what we see is even in the Old Testament that God's intention from the first, from the very beginning, was to limit and confine retribution and vengeance. The Bible tells us that retribution and vengeance, retaliation, don't belong in the personal relationships of a godly person. Now that's what Jesus had to say about God's earliest word on retaliation. This is his starting point. But also we see that Jesus gives us God's final word on retaliation. 
The severe verdict of a criminal court is not the pattern for disciples who follow the Lord of love. Jesus gives an absolute prohibition about retaliation. Look what he says in verse 39. Don't resist an evildoer. Now this can also be translated, don't uh, set yourself against the evil one. So with these words, what's Jesus doing? He's calling for a life of non-retaliation in interpersonal relationships. So what does he include and what does he exclude with this commandment? I think certainly there are some things that we know are excluded. One of those is Jesus does not mean that we're to cease resisting the devil and his evil schemes. Uh, Scripture commands us repeatedly to resist the devil and to resist sin. Jesus resisted Satan's temptations in Matthew chapter 4. Uh, Also, as the children were singing about and as they learned this week in Vacation Bible School, uh, the book of Ephesians tells us in Ephesians 6.13, Take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to what? Resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. James 4.17 says, Submit to God and what? Resist the devil. And also over in 1 Peter don't have it on the screen, but 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9 says this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your care on him because he cares for you. This verse, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. And what are the first two verses of verse 9? Resist him. And so the scripture tells us that God, uh, Jesus, by giving us this word, he's not talking about us not resisting the evil one in temptation. It also does not indicate that we should not seek justice or defend ourselves when threatened with serious bodily harm. Uh, Over in the book of Exodus, uh, there is a passage that uh, pretty remote for most of us, but it says in Exodus chapter 22, verses 2 and 3, If a thief is caught in the act of breaking in and he's beaten to death, no one is guilty of bloodshed. (laughs) Now listen to this, the next verse. But if this happens after sunrise, the householder is guilty of bloodshed. A thief must make full restitution. If he's unable, he's to be sold because of his theft. All right, so uh, back in the day when there were no locks on the doors, there was no ADT, there was no alarm system on the homes in which people lived, a person could walk in. I, I, I asked this last week, I referred to the Boy Scout, you know, code of honor. Well, if you were ever in the Boy Scouts, you know, when you go camping during the summer, everybody's putting up tents. Tents look a lot alike, right? Pup tents, you know, you go to the Army surplus store, you buy this tent, all the tents look alike. It would not be unusual for a person to accidentally walk into somebody else's tent or, in our case, get down on your hands and knees and crawl into the tent. That's the way it was back in the day. Also, as back in the day, you know, you didn't rub against the side of the tent because the coating, if you did that enough, and you'd have a dee, dee, dee when it rained, you know, it would just drip through the tent. It was a lot of fun. Trust me. 
And so it's the reason why I don't go camping today. By the way, anybody tells me they go camping for fun, I say, you are crazy. That is not my idea of a good time. I mean, set me up at the Hilton. I'm good with it. So anyway, what you have is you have this Old Testament law that was given. And obviously, uh, what happens if a person were to come in, a thief were to break into a person's house at night or come into their home at night for the purpose of thievery, and a person was alarmed, had their family in there, awakened, and then they sought to defend themselves and their property, and a person was killed, and this was within the law code. But notice that even then, there's a restraint. And what is the restraint? If it happens in the daytime, you can defend yourself, but don't kill the person. So it does not indicate that we should not seek justice or defend ourselves when threatened with serious bodily injury. But there's another thing that I think applies. And I do not believe that it, the protection of our nation, our family, or home is prohibited by Jesus' words in this text. You remember the story in Jesus told in Luke chapter 18 about a widow who kept coming to the judge and coming to the judge and coming to the judge until finally he, he was just worn out with this woman who kept coming, coming, and coming. And finally, Jesus is pointing this as he's talking about prayer. Finally, the judge says, well, I'm going to listen to her just because she's not going to go away. She's not going to stop coming to me. And he's talking about the persistence of prayer. But the issue that Jesus brings up in there is something that he would borrow something that would be understandable among the people who were listening to the parable, believable. And so what you have is you have a widow here who is trying to protect her property or to take care of herself and her family who is unjustly, somebody is coming against her, and so she is resisting. What Jesus intends by these words is a life of non-resistance and non-retaliation in the face of, listen to this, Personal indignities, personal affronts, personal inconveniences. And so what does he do? He gives us some concrete illustrations of this principle in verses 39 to 42. So to make the point more vivid, what he does is he purpose, purposely uses some rather extreme examples and he's trying to grab our attention and to make his point very clear. Uh, he gives these examples that relate to injury to body, injury to time, also injury to property. And then he tops it off with an illustration about the nuisance of inconvenience that happens when a person comes to borrow something at an inconvenient time. Now, first of all, let's look at these one by one. Verse 39, he says, uh, speaking about injury to body, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. All right, let's say that you're right-handed, you come to me, and you slap me. Now, you're right-handed, so if you're going to slap me on the right cheek, how are you going to have to slap me? Backhanded. So in this instance, the backhanded slap across a person's face was more than just 
injurious. It was something that was considered to be an insult of the greatest degree. If a person, on the other hand, were to hit you with an open hand on the uh, left side of your face with their right hand, uh, this was not considered to be quite as severe or injurious to a person. And so what Jesus is saying here is he's saying the act that is more egregious, the one that is more insulting, you're to forgive that one. Um, Then I want you to notice what he says about injury to property. Verse 40, as for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. The search of historical records shows that frivolous lawsuits were rare in the first century in Israel. And so this suit that is described here was probably a legitimate one where the plaintiff was most likely uh, to win the case. Now, ordinarily, defendants are upset if the judgment goes against them. But Jesus, what does he do? He commands his disciples to seek reconciliation with their opponents by going above and beyond the legal requirements in order to make amends. So Jewish law permitted an opponent to sue for possession of an offender's inner garment, the shirt. Now, typically, it was a sleeve tunic that extended to the ankles and was made of wool or linen. And these could be valuable, and actually, they were frequently used in bartering and also for settling debts. Um, So a person, the proverb, giving you the shirt off his back. But what Jesus says here is he says, if he asks for your shirt, give him the coat also. Well, the coat was an outer robe or wrap, and it was the more essential piece of clothing since it provided warmth. It could double as a blanket for the poor, as seen in a number of Old Testament texts. So Jewish law, Jewish law, uh, insisted that the coat was exempt from seizure by the courts. So taking the coat was considered to be too severe a punishment. Jesus thus commanded his disciples to do even more than the courts allowed when seeking reconciliation with an opponent. Third, I want you to notice that he speaks about injury to time. Verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. In that day, uh, Israel was occupied territory under Roman rule. We know this. And Jesus likely had in mind the much-hated practice of compulsion, which was practiced by uh, their occupiers and those who were in high-ranking positions could actually force a person, uh, one of these uh, indentured people, could force them to actually carry a load for them. And so this was something that was regularly practiced. Well, where, where do we see this most obviously in practice? You remember when Jesus was ordered to carry his cross to the place of execution? And this was a common practice among criminals. It was their way of showing, of shaming them, not only just for them being killed for their crime, but to shame them. But you remember what had happened to Jesus before he began to carry his cross? He was exhausted, no sleep. 
He had been beaten repeatedly. He had been in prison and bounced around in prison all night long. So sleepless, beaten, worn down. Jesus is making his way to Calvary when he can no longer carry his cross. He keeps falling and falling. What did the Roman soldiers do? You remember what had happened in Matthew chapter 27? It tells us that on that road while he was making his way, the Roman soldiers looked over to a man from Cyrene, a Cyrenian, and did what? Compelled him to carry Jesus' cross. And this was a common practice. Now, uh, people have looked and they have searched, and even in my reading, I noticed that it's been commonly rumored that there was a, a law even among the Romans, that limited the uh, compulsion, the act of compulsion, to one mile. So you could ask a person to, to do something, to carry something for a mile, but no more. But there actually, in the historical records, is nothing exists that actually uh, states that that was a, a law that was in effect. It's probably much more likely that it's just common sense. I mean, a person carrying something a mile would be exhausted. And speaking of common sense, these were occupiers in Israel. Now, the streets in Israel, those of you who've been there, the streets in in, uh, old Israel, Jerusalem, are very, very narrow. And so even when I was there, you might could get a row of uh, two or three, maybe four rows of people to leave enough room for a car one way to go down through one of those streets. And I mean, we're talking like this, you know? And I mean, you're doing everything you can to suck it in and to get out of the way as the car comes through. Back in those days, you remember that there were Jewish zealots who resented the presence of the Romans, and it was not uncommon that when the Romans would march through the city, the zealots would have the Sicarii, that little tiny knife tucked up underneath their robe, and they would be two or three rows back, and they would reach out as the soldiers were passing by, and they'd just jab them with that knife, and then they'd disappear into the crowd. So the Romans intentionally had more than a motive. Not only would it exhaust somebody if they carried something for more than a mile, and they realized you don't want to do that, but they were trying their very best not to incense a people who already resented their presence in the land. And so what Jesus says to his disciples is he said, you should carry your oppressor's pack one mile out of obligation, but you should carry it a second mile out of service and love. And then I want you to notice the fourth example that Jesus gives us in verse 42. There was the nuisance of inconvenience. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, reading this entire paragraph, what we notice is that the theme or the subject, the topic of this paragraph is Jesus' teaching against retaliation. Therefore, this verse probably prohibits the disciples from seeking vengeance against opponents by refusing to help them in their time of need. 
By giving the necessities of life to an enemy, disciples can restore broken relationships. Now, in a room much smaller than this, with many fewer people than we have present here this morning, At some time in your life, perhaps somebody close to you has done something that was hurtful. And for all this time, you've still been carrying that. And it's kind of, you know, on the slow burner on the back. But it's still simmering there. And you haven't gotten rid of it. Jesus is saying that he recognizes that. But he's also saying to us, now this is the creator of the universe who knows us better than we know ourselves. And what Jesus is saying is it's better to be doubly wrong than to live with smoldering vengeance. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 to 21, these words. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath. Because it's written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you'll be heaping fiery coals on his head. Don't be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Now, I read these words, and I listened to them. And I'll have an opportunity to put them into practice as I drive on Interstate 24 going home today. But you know what I know. Jesus wants us to believe in him, but his invitation to his disciples is to what? Follow me. Believe in me, yes, but that's not just some abstract thing, although the belief that he talks about means to put all your trust in him. It means that when you sit in a chair or you believe a chair will hold you up, you, you actually sit down in the chair. We all have some level of ability to be able to believe and trust. Otherwise, you would have walked around that pew this morning. You would have been kicking it and doing everything else before you started to sit down in it. But you just sat down. Why? Because you trusted it would hold you up. But Jesus says more than to trust him. We are to what? Follow him. Thus the title of our series, Follow Me. These are the words of Jesus. And so, it's only appropriate that we should end this message by saying that Jesus himself was the incarnate illustration of his teaching. When arrested, Jesus did not resist. 
When insulted, he remained silent. The prophet Isaiah pictured him as being like a sheep that is silent before his shearers. And I ask myself, does this work? It earned Jesus a crucifixion. And also a resurrection. And now we come to that point when God wants us to respond to him. And I want you to join me in prayer now. Let's stand to our feet as we pray. This morning you can talk to Jesus using words like these and perhaps these words express your heart today dear God my life is broken and I recognize that the reason my life is broken is because of my sin and Jesus I cry out that I need you I believe that Christ lived and died and was raised from the dead to rescue me from my sin. Forgive me, God. I turn from my selfish ways and I'm putting my trust in Jesus to save me. I know that Jesus is Lord of all and right now God, I'm committing myself to follow Jesus. Now, perhaps that was your prayer this morning. Many of you watching online. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Romans 10, 13 adds these words, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Did you call on Jesus today? You know, the Bible teaches us how to pursue God, and He's got a design for healthy relationships. And there's probably more than what I'm about to say, but one of His designs for us is prayer. And prayer just means you can talk to God about anything, anytime. He cares about the things that are of concern to you. A second thing is the church. The church is a place for God's family to come together where we help each other walk in Christ. And today, perhaps, this would fit your situation. You believe in Jesus You've trusted him for your salvation, but you've never been baptized. 
and that happens in a church as we give a testimony before others that I'm being baptized, one, because Jesus commands me to be baptized, and secondly, it's a way that I can show publicly what Christ has already done in my life. We're not baptized to become Christians. We're baptized because we are Christians. And then third, there's the Bible. The Bible reveals God's design. It shows us how to pursue Christ. But there's one last thing I want to say to you this morning, and that is, one of the things that God has designed for us to live in healthy relationships with Him and with others is to share our decision with other people. To not be ashamed of Jesus. To tell others about your new life with Christ. And the best time to do that is right now. And so today, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, or perhaps you want to follow the Lord in believer's baptism, then don't leave today without telling someone. Our ministers will be down here at the front to speak with anyone who comes forward and has a decision that you want to make. I'm not going to ask you to come forward during the singing of this hymn. This is going to be our hymn of response. But following the service, when we dismiss... You've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you're requesting baptism, you're interested in becoming a member of the body of Christ here. I want to encourage you to do those things, and we're going to be here at the front to speak with you about that, and we'll give you some direction about next steps you can take. Let's bow together again in prayer. Father, thank